These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. So let's move on to Seth. It's always been sort of in the back of my mind, knowing that we'd come to this chapter eventually. But it's remarkable how different he is in this chapter than any time we have seen him previous. It's the Seth Beach episode. (laughs) I mean, not quite. His essential nature has not changed. But he clearly sees something in Hrau that makes him react differently than we have seen in him before. Mm. He still tries to dictate terms, but with less arrogance, especially since he cannot intimidate or beat her into submitting. Especially after he's given up some of his energy. Like, you know, that is a fight that, like, we know how it would end. But sorry, interrupted. It's all right. We don't know if he has ever seen Hrau's like. Or if there are others like Seth, and therefore she reminds him of his own kind. Maybe he just sees a familiarity in her, or even potentially considers her rarity a prize. We only know that he is lonely, and in her he sees something that is beyond the companionship of Braoth or the Wendigo. Certainly something no mere human could give. He makes an effort to show her empathy and to learn her ways, shows her a measure of respect. And when she finally says no, he respects that choice. I began this thought with saying that he has not changed that much, but it also occurs to me, as we discussed earlier, he claims that Hrau asked him for life, but that's not necessarily true. She thought she was speaking to Dark Panther, and what she actually wanted was an end to pain. So -hmm. therefore, Seth interpreted her words in a way that one would consider more beneficial to him. He saved her life because he wanted her. But as Hrau said to the Fire Lion, she gave herself willingly as a sacrifice and would have accepted death. Therefore, Seth's act, as much as he thought it a gift was very likely for impure motivations. Seth, like, I was just being a nice guy. (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) Though, what you were talking about of, like, when Seth saw Prow and whatever reasons that he had to bring her back, maybe he just, like, was fighting and having his butt kicked by a giant purple tiger and just thought to himself... This better not awaken anything in me. You kicked my ass, and now we're friends. Uh, (laughs) Just like all shonen anime. Yeah. (laughs) Is Frau a shonen protagonist? This requires uh, research. Anyway, for the meantime. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. We're going to have another show with Alejandra on now. Uh, (laughs) Don't say her name too many times. She'll invade the Skype call. All right. I'm I'm so off topic and loopy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, listeners. I'm sorry, Greg. Let us continue. This whole chapter in true Seth fashion gives us a closer look at him than ever before. And all it does is raise further questions. <laughs> we now know that Seth gained some of his abilities and his current host of boons through Yagana. Like, mm. oh my god, can you imagine if in Hades, like, you enter a room and there's, like, boon of Yagana, and it's like, <laughs> oh, oh no! no. <laughs> like, ah, you can hit foes better, but you must give up all of your romantic relations or something like that. No, it's like, it's like a deal made with chaos, only worse. Yeah, Chaos is so on the level in that. Mm -hmm. You you can hang with Chaos. Chaos is fine. (laughs) 
and we know that uh, Seth has had a memory, a life before all of this with which to pay Yagana for the boons that he has gained from her. But what was that life? How did he meet Yagana? What and who was he before all of this? Is there something important in those memories inherently? Or are they only valuable to Yagana because they are precious to him? If he is not of Saitash or the Wendigo, then why was he connected with them? Did he request them? Did Yagana bring them to his attention? What is happening? What's going on in there? What? That light! Oh, the red. Yeah, it's a chicken roaster sign. That's right across from my window. Can't you shut the shades? They are shut. Oh, by the way, your friend Seth, he stopped by. Oh yeah, what do you have to say? Yeah, he was fired. For all Seth's effort to do away with the human condition by making so many of them fit into the Wendigo template and fall under his direction, we see that that is not enough for him to be content. The Wendigos are the result of a gargantuan effort to create a family that he can immerse himself in. And Brayoth is an animal companion that means a great deal to him, clearly. But whatever drew him into Hrau, be it her nature as a beautiful and great creature of Rama that he feels more kinship with than others he has encountered, or her warrior spirit... What he needs is someone he respects who could and might choose to stay with him, but it has to be a choice, even if the terms he sets are ones that Hrau falls into reluctantly at first. However, he still frames it as his terms. It is still her choice, and by the end, he does not stop her from making that choice to leave or even expressing that she will come to regret it like he did with Annie because the time spent together and what connection, however fleeting that they do establish becomes meaningless if it is not out of Frau's own volition. And that is how we know that this is still Frau. Because if her strength that came from Seth now is what makes up her entire being, then there's the fear that she is entirely of him, that she would have no means of actually, you know, escaping his mm. will or anything like that. But as we can see, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that's not the case. Seth is not demanding or putting her under his thrall or anything like that. Mm. Yeah, as much as I was saying a moment ago that he went against her agency by saving her life when that was not what she necessarily asked for, at the very least, one could say that what he provided her was an opportunity to say yes when that was not an option when she was literally dying. Mm-hmm. I think that you definitely hit the right note there in that her saying yes is very important to him, even if he stacks the deck so that she might develop enough of a connection or curiosity or whatever to have that be a legitimate choice on her part. Like he says, stay with me, experience time with me see what I have to offer, a bit of who I am, and then make your choice. But it still feels very much like there's a little bit of beauty and beast mentality there. Mm -hmm. You know, be like, you have to stay with me because that's the deal that we made. Your father gets to live and go free, but you have to stay with me in exchange. You'll join me for dinner. That's not a request. Like it's it, like that's actually one point of difference. Like he yeah. makes dinner. <laughs> Seth <laughs> does make dinner. Actually, I yeah. don't know that Beast ever does that. No, because uh, Beast is technically a prince, and princes don't make dinner. That's actually one point in favor of the uh, the prince and the princess of the frog. He actually learns how to fucking cook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After admitting, I don't know how to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> and that is a line that like, I feel in so many moments of just whenever I come across something that like a life skill that I don't have. And I just go, 
I don't know how to do anything. <laughs> I mean, he knows how to play the ukulele, but that's not the same thing. He has a very nice smile. <laughs> Question. Yeah. Is Prince Nadine a himbo? Yes. Mm. Yes, he's absolutely a himbo. You're absolutely yeah. right. He, he thinks he skates by on looks and charm alone. In some ways, he's more uh, more quintessentially a himbo than Kronk is, who we associate as a himbo. But he's Ooh. actually very nice and helpful. Mm. See, there's a sort of innocence with like the himbo archetype, I feel. Mm. And I think that Nadine... There's a few edges that need to be like rounded off by just being in good company. I feel like Kronk is already there. Like them's fighting words if you say that anyone is more quintessentially a himbo. Kronk is the proto himbo. He is the <laughs> <laughs> anyway. We've been on too many tangents. I need to exercise some self-control. Fair enough. But on the other hand, I never expected to discuss the princess and the frog again, so that was useful at least. We brought up the Princess and the Frog twice in this recording session. Yes, but that's only because I recently watched it. That's a separate conversation, and I will not get into how I feel about the Princess and the Frog here. What I will go into, and I've watched the Castlevania animated series exactly once, and by that I mean just the first two seasons. I have not watched anything after that, though I did listen to the School of Movies, that Alex, Sharon, and Toby did on what happens after the first two seasons. Of course, you know more about Castlevania in general. So I was curious at the time, and therefore ask you this question, how much does this chapter make you think of the relationship between Lisa and Dracula? And do you think the show could have influenced this chapter or not? I looked at the timeline. It could have, but... It's a very loose... Alex would have to have watched it immediately after it came out in order to influence the writing that he would have finished later on that year. Whether or not it influenced it, I think it's nevertheless a very good parallel to invoke just to like compare and contrast and identify more of the things that make what's going on here unique. So I think it's worth bringing up and a good question I think the parallel is only superficial, however, not wholly the same. Yeah. In the Castlevania show, Lisa and Dracula come across one another because she approaches him. Yeah, I did she remember knocked, that. Yeah. Yeah. She knocks on his front door with the pommel of her knife after walking past the impaled people. The impaled people may as well have like a sign on it that says no solicitors or something <laughs> like that. So after that, she requests that she learn what she can from him. And Dracula initially exercises his fearful reputation to challenge and perhaps repel her. But while she is not unaffected by this, she nevertheless holds firm, asserting that he's a terrible host and not being taken in by the superstitious fears that grip so many of her contemporaries. Yeah, it's From a that... little bit of a spirited away vibe there, almost. The way the yeah. main protagonist like demands things of the woman that runs the home. Granted, she got advice from the dragon, uh, which, mm. the boy that is secretly the dragon, uh, in order to know that she needed to press the old woman on this and everything like that. But yeah, that parallel just sort of came to mind there initially mm. in terms of like, you're being very rude. I came here to ask you a favor. Please do me the respect of considering my request. Exactly. And from that meeting point, Dracula becomes enamored with Lisa for her boldness, her steady and unwavering character, and what knowledge and perspective that she is able to bring to him. Like, she, I think, even frames it as, start with me and I'll start with you, in terms of just, like, there is mutual perspective that they lend to one another. It's mm. not one-sided where Dracula has this wealth of knowledge and he even says like I've got centuries of scientific and academic uh, knowledge here and you are suggesting I go on a walking tour but she nevertheless asserts that yes actually that's what he needs and mm -hmm. I love the delivery of I think I might like you Lisa. In this case the Dracula parallel Seth in uh, Steamheart 
is the one who approaches our perspective Lisa stand in, Prowl, not the other way around. And that's not just splitting hairs over a little detail, because the first moments of these two relationships is a key part of their respective dynamics. We don't get to see much of Dracula and Lisa's time together firsthand, so that initial meeting is our basis for much of our understanding of their love for one another, and from what we are later told, it's a solid grounding for what their life was like together. Prow and Seth are not together for long, and what time they do spend is done in quiet companionship where little is explicitly stated. So a big part of the connection is based on these uncertain assessments of Seth's inner thoughts that are coupled with the quiet serenity that Rao draws from his company that doesn't cause her to waver. Ultimately, Frau and Seth's connection is based on something quite elemental and primal that can't be easily articulated in words because neither of them use an abundance of words during their brief time together. By contrast, Lisa and Dracula are a pairing driven by dialogue and ideas and thoughts spoken aloud and shared with one another. The parallel that came to mind for me more was one that you've already voiced, which is Beauty and the Beast. It's mm. that, like, you are my guest here. You still get to make the deal. It's still your choice. But once you've done it, there is a feeling of, like, trap. Like, it's not one-to-one, but that was where my mind headed to a bit more immediately. Have you ever had a chance to see the old Beauty and the Beast TV show with Linda Hamilton and Ron Perlman? Yeah, I knew which one you were going to bring up, but no, I haven't seen that. Mm. It's been a very long time since I've seen that show, and I don't know how well it ages. I just remember that the costume makeup for Ron Perlman looking like a lion it still feels like amazing to me in retrospect and i feel oh, like the that's pictures of that are fantastic what a face built for like fantastic makeup right like yeah no that's one of the things that ron perlman has always excelled at he is not someone that will ever have a traditionally handsome face but he embodies these inhuman characters extremely well whether we're talking about hellboy or the titular beast or in one case in the name of the rose how he's this grotesque caricature of a man uh Mm. that was taken in to serve the monks and he like can barely speak language master what language was he speaking all languages and none ron perlman plays characters that have so much character in them. He is a statue of a man, like mm. uh, like one of those classical statues that has just sort of come to life and has that embedded... Uh, there's a richness of character there, even if there like, are moments where it feels like he is a little less forthcoming with all of that, but it just comes out when it does come out. It Oh, that's good. And... I am wondering if your head is going to the same place where I am, which is like, ooh, what if Seth was played by Ron Perlman? See, that's the thing, is that there is definitely, when Antonio Torreson drew Seth for the purposes of Arlington, I find myself wondering if Alex sent a picture of Ron Perlman in the Beast makeup to be his, Mm. like, partial example of what was going on there because the whole main thing that Seth has the going whole main on, thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> and yes I know I probably mentioned this already in one of the old Arlington shows given that I know I showed an image from the Beauty and the Beast show before in show notes forgive me this was an unscripted bit that just came out organically I I wonder if that was a potential influence on uh, Antonio's artwork. There is a magnetic gravitational pull that uh, I think a lot of Ron Perlman's roles Mm. and performances have, which is so much a part of uh, Seth's visual design and characterization in the books has. 
again, from what I'm remembering of the show, it also shows uh, the capacity for that version of the beast to be fearsome during like, you know, action sequences and everything like that. You're going to see in, on many occasions that beast lives in the underground near subway stations. And so therefore, as he's traveling around, it's sort of very dark man style where he's clinging to the top of moving trains to get from one place to another in a hurry. So there is a great intensity in Ron Perlman's Beast, but he can also be exceptionally romantic and tender when he is playing off of Linda Hamilton. The show itself was a blend of romance and crime drama based around Linda Hamilton's character working for the DA and therefore getting into complicated situations in the human world that the Beast, Vincent, would assist her with due to their empathetic connection and her encouraging him not to hide from the world. Shockingly, this show was partly written and produced by a pre-Game of Thrones George R. R. Martin. And I mean pre-the book, not just pre-the show. Maybe someday, Toby and I might go back and watch it. Do a side episode on the show. I imagine that might be a little bit of what Seth is trying to go for here, but he probably hasn't exercised those muscles in a very long time, so it doesn't work. <laughs> Seth tries smiling, and it's just like... <laughs> and it's literally like in the Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> <laughs> also, I love... I'm, I'm very glad that we decided to mm. do this chapter on its own, because it's, we've already hit the two-hour mark for yes. talking about this. <laughs> There's a lot. There's Seth, there's mm. Rao, there's Yagala. There's, I think when it's, as it's written, it's done so with like an idea that this one's like a big one mm. in a book that's filled with big, not necessarily in length, although this mm. is a longer one at almost half an hour or so in the podcast form. Mm. It's just that this is a major turning point. It is mm. a pivotal moment of what comes next. This is the death of one day and the start of a new one. Mm. And so the chapter has to embody both of those. I would have to immerse myself in the audio drama version of it again to be certain. But I suspect that part of it, like especially the long parts of any other individual chapters of audio dramas that Alex has done, is that it's not just about how long it takes to narrate the chapter itself. It includes all of the separate musical and sound effect aspects of building the environment that the story is living in. And considering how significant this the Yagana part of it is and mm. trying to create the correct environment for the narration of bringing Rao back from the jaws of death is mm. meant to implant in the listener. Uh, I suspect that there, there's a lot of room given to the, the non written aspects of this mm. chapter. It's like a variation of, well, it took me an hour to write. I thought it would take an hour to read. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. As a part of this edit, I did take a moment to re-listen to this chapter in its entirety. It would be easy to say, in response to our earlier musings, that Dark Panther was, in fact, wholly Seth, given the similarity in voice, but making it that simple is a boring answer. Besides, given that Alex voices both Seth and other divine voices in the story, not to mention most voices in the story that do not have a dedicated actor, it's hard to separate the diegetic from the paratext anyway. This chapter begins with beautiful music, but leads into some of Kevin MacLeod's creepiest pieces such as Medusa and It Is Lost, as it sets the stage of Yagana's hut and the deleterious circumstances leading to Hrau's healing and the deal struck between these two creatures. Yagana feels differently voiced from what I remember, more associated with her crone-like body, and I am reminded of why I was first scared of her, even apart from her later actions. 
Meanwhile, Seth is the most emotive he has ever been. Not just in what he says, but in how he breathes, as well as how Maureen describes him through Prow's voice. It's during this part of the story where Prow is narrating her experience with Seth, where everything moves very slowly and calmly in time with the music. And it's here that the similarities between what I remember of that old 80s show seems most stark. But it also reminds me of many other pieces of media that evoke a melancholy that I find difficult to describe. A sadness that we the audience feel in spite of other emotions that might negate our empathy for those involved. As we are bringing our discussion of this chapter to a close, you might ask why the subject of Seth's ability to read others doesn't come up in our conversation, especially since Frau brings it up herself. We have no clear indication if this power extends to her at all in the way it seems to with the Wendigo and humans. It possibly does not, and that could speak to his fascination with her if all other things that live are an open book to him. Or it could be that it's not a form of supernatural empathy or telepathy at all. It is, in fact, that he cannot read Rao's body language the same way he can read the Wendigo or humanity. Bear in mind a few things. One, we had already been talking about this one chapter for a while, and I was wanting to wrap up. Two, I didn't want too much to trot over ground we had already covered in the past. But most importantly, how much Toby and I can talk about a character shrouded in mystery as Seth, same as Yagana, is complicated at this stage in the story. Three plus years ago, Steamheart was the endpointed Toby and I started with, where the most plot points from Secret Rooms, The Handbook, and Arlington were addressed in some form. Now, in November of 2023, six more books have released, during which some of the secrets of Seth and Yagana have been revealed. Which means, as part of the retrospective, we work to tightly constrain ourselves on only being able to discuss using the context of the books we have covered since we started in 2020. Sometimes we succeed better than others, and sometimes that's because we legitimately still don't know the answers. If you want to know more about what we know and when we knew it, there are cast and creator interviews and News of the Century episodes aplenty, where we are not bound by our strict spoiler rules. But as far as the retrospective is concerned, we will only bring up supporting context in the books that cover them. Rest assured, though, somewhere in our many ramblings, those topics will be discussed. Big question uh, as we conclude our discussion on this chapter. How has Rao changed and why? Because this is a subject that's brought up again and again. We're discussing other topics. Seth seems to suggest that very little has changed, but can he know? She was bitten by the Wendigo, but not transformed. Mm. Ostensibly, Miguel thinks that she is bigger and stronger, but that could just be because he thought her dead, and now she's standing in front of him alive and well. Mm. She does not become more like Seth in that blood and saliva does not infect, as we discussed earlier, but she talks about how she feels changed. And as we've brought up multiple times now, when Miguel sees Rao, her eyes are more orange, and she seems more wild. Therefore, I posited to you, is it merely the healing magic gifted her, implying that the magic is Seth's own rather than given from an orb? And I wanted to hear your thoughts on, aside from coming back from the jaws of death, what has this change actually entailed from her, aside mm. from the effect on her mind? I kind of partially covered this earlier when I was voicing my many questions. And that means we really don't know what Frau's present status is. We can make suppositions, like maybe she actually did die and was literally brought back to life by Yagana. Or maybe she's a Wendigo that's been 
inoculated and some of its characteristics have been suppressed by Seth's influence. Or maybe she is a super tiger and her hair can suddenly go all gold and spiky or something. I don't know. The point of all of this is that Prowl's apparent death and subsequent return feels less of a cop-out because of it, especially after Annie died for real, which could make us question why Annie doesn't get a dramatic resurrection too. Mm. In the case of Prowl, something irreversible has happened. Something has had to change in order for Prowl to stay alive, and that may come with benefits, but there's a good chance that it will come with major drawbacks as well further down the line. This was not a gift freely given to us readers by Alex. He allowed us to keep Frau around, but at a price. And mm. yes, Alex, I am comparing you with Yigana. Thank <laughs> you very much. Ooh, okay, them's fighting words right there. Um... <laughs> The significance of the cost of magic and the price that one must pay. In order for something to be obtained, something of equal value must be lost. And at the same time, we also know two things about Alex's writing. First of all, he has alluded to... Greg, um, after this long, I feel like we should probably know more than two things about Alex's writing. <laughs> I'm only going to talk about two of them right now. <laughs> We know many Pedantry, things about Alex's writing. Pedantry, it's the best feature of the co-host. First of all, that Alex loves setting things up that won't be paid off for a long time. And in some cases, giving us answers to questions we weren't smart enough to ask. Mm -hmm. So you may be very right in that while Seth may have paid part of a price, that the full bill might not have come due yet. And that mm -hmm. we might be seeing more of that in some of the major storytelling, like in Four Worlds Collide and everything like that. Mm. We've been talking about various examples of like deals with the devil, mm. and there's one really good one, probably one of my favorite in any piece of fiction, is in the Order of the Stick webcomic. Ah, yes. Where Vesuvius, God, uh, that's that's the elf's name, right? Vesuvius, yes, yeah, Vesuvius yeah, yeah. is confronted with a deal where mm. it's like, oh, you won't have to sell your soul for the amount of power that we will give you. It's just that for as long as you have it, you will have to spend that long in hell mm. or the equivalent of. And as the story unfolds, you can see that the demons elect to use that at key moments where Vasuvius's presence would really be quite handy. Yeah, yeah. I miss Order of the Stick. It updates very infrequently, and I, I really want to see how that story finally plays out. I've been checking it out regularly for over a decade now. Must be coming up to 15 years. I, I will. It's always been on my uh, bookmarks bar, and I'll just click it and be like, oh, there's a new page today, and I'll yeah. check that out. So it's one that simultaneously never went away and also never really like came back consistently. It's just, it's here when it's here. I will say that Order of the Stick has an advantage in that it finally feels like the story is coming to an end. Yes, this is as, the last book it's currently on. As opposed to Girl Genius, which just seems to go on and on, and some mm -hmm. things are never resolved. Something new keeps being introduced and complicating the situation in a new way, and new mm -hmm. characters come on board, and I'm just like, I feel like you've completely lost the thread here. Thank and I love Kaja... And Phil, I just feel like I'm a little disappointed by them keeping on adding to mm. the story. Now, Order of the Stick has always had that advantage that for a long while now, it's felt as if there is a clear plan. And that helps because a lot of the central narrative of it, once you find out what it is, is numbered. Like, mm -hmm. there are this many gates and they, you know... We know that this many have been destroyed. And logically, once we get to a point where this last one is there, it's like, well, there can't be any more story after that because the implica implication is once we get there, 
there's nothing left. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we either win or we don't. So that's helped keep a sort of trust that it will keep going. And that's, I bring this up because it's a great example of something that pays off much further down the line. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Alex is very good at that as well. This idea is important to Alex is that stories end. Yes. Uh, And he has an ending in mind, even if it takes a long route to get there. You know, based on everything we've already seen, again, talking about his preferred writing style, all of these seeds planted will eventually flower into something. Mm. You know, we don't necessarily Mm. know what it's going to be. It took a long while. It took many books in order for a few things that Alex planted all the way back in secret rooms and tiger's eye to come to full flower and everything but he knows what the answer is unlike jj abrams will be like oh this is a fascinating mystery what's the answer and behind (laughs) the scenes would be like hey what is the answer i don't know no i'll figure it out my my number one advice to any new prospective new century fan is trust alex shaw but don't trust him too much. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent way of putting it, yes. Um, but yeah, those are the two thoughts, is that this may be a plot point that Alex will return to in terms of how much has Harau actually changed. And the idea of cost being deferred is mm. something that Alex has done a number of times in other books, especially when it comes to the price that one pays, the price of magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the chapter at the end returns us to today. Mm-hmm. And as dramatic as Hrau's arrival is, it does not completely turn the tide mm-hmm. as we would have hoped for there such a such a superhero landing for such a Gandalf return. Yeah, no, like uh, despite having the Gandalf Association, the turning of the tide is not quite as it doesn't stay for as long as we might have hoped. Exactly. And the tide isn't turned not because Hrau is more powerful than any there, but specifically because she cannot keep fighting without risking the lives of others. Mm-hmm. Indeed, there is an implication that her arrival may have contributed to Frank being taken out of the action, meaning mm-hmm. that we go into the next chapter literally called Standoff. Uh-oh. And in a way, this almost feels appropriate. Violence is sometimes necessary, but in Alex's books, it is seldom the final solution to a problem. Merely, Ooh, don't like that the phrasing of the final solution. Oh dear, sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, violence is merely the price paid when other better options are not available or capitalized on. And I wonder if that's going to be further hit home by the events of the next chapter. Ominous. The tension is much the same as what people commonly point out when they say that Superman can't have tension in his stories because he's too powerful. Yeah, maybe that's the case, but the people around him sure aren't invincible. And hey, it just so happens that a guy like Superman really flipping cares about nothing bad happening to other people. That's where the tension lies, not on whether Superman is going to get shot and die. And the same problem exists here. There are just some problems that you can't solve by throwing a Hulk or a supercharged tiger at. Yeah. How does it feel, Toby? How does it feel to return to Steamheart? It feels good. It feels like, you know, I remember all the controls. I feel like we have a good handle on it. We went on many winding tangents, and that's exactly how I like it. But, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad for many more chapters of Steam Heart. How many do we have left? Three. Okay, so we have a recording, and then the wrap-up. My goodness. Yeah, exactly. Right, I'll put together an outline for the final three chapters, and then I'll have to figure out what the final themes of Steamheart that we want to discuss are. And of course, we definitely have to script and then act out the uh, the proper So, I hear you have a new new century novel for me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I, sir, I do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
I yeah, it's going to be fun. And uh, between now and our next recording session, whenever that will be, I will have done my Viva exam for my uh, thesis, which is happening next Wednesday. Greg, you have your fingers crossed for me. Uh, mm. Listeners, go back in time and have uh, your fingers crossed because odds are I will have done it already by the time you hear this. Editor Greg can let you know how that went. It went better than anybody hoped for, which means that on our next recording, I'll be able to introduce Toby properly. I'm excited, nervous, and excited for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And in the meantime... I think we'll have our retrospective on Steamheart done before the year is out. But based on uh, how quickly it takes Alex to turn this around, it may be interrupted again for a news <laughs> of the century on Castle uh, of the Moon. It's it's a race to see which of us, like, do we finish Steamheart before he finishes Castle of the Moon? To answer this, Alex did finish writing his newest gothic horror, which means that after this episode's release, you'll first get to hear part two of our Beyond the Wind Door spooktacular, followed by our first news of the century in just about two years on Castle of the Moon. Whew. Well, we'll be seeing all of the rest of you soon enough on another trip through the wind door. Take care. That brings us to the end of our show, but stay tuned after the music for some gathered outtakes. To close us out, some more music I've been keeping in reserve. Until next time, this is a song from the Cyanar Wild Hearts OST, Wild Hearts Never Die. that we just have ketchup and barbecue sauce on our <laughs> table that's this is this is my desk slash uh, dining table so uh. <laughs> the way we have our current setup over here like i have certain things that i expect to have on my desk in order to have them within range mm -hmm. um but i spend more time on the couch over here to my right than i do at the desk usually and so therefore because there's a ledge to the window right next to where I sit, that becomes the storing ground for a lot of the things I might need on a regular basis, and that includes the ketchup bottle. Yeah, yeah like, you need ketchup, like, within easy access. Exactly. If I'm going to be using it every day, then why leave it in the cupboard? Especially, yeah. yeah so, I don't think yeah. ever goes in the cupboard. No, like, the cupboard. yeah. <laughs> ketchup in the cupboard. That's where we store the spare ketchup. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Sarah, you should quote that. <laughs> Here's uh, what I went to the other room for. Mm. Uh, so, uh, like a sucker, I got this. Ah, uh, yeah. mm -hmm, okay. Mm -hmm.
you can commemorative see coin. Yeah. Commemorative coin. Yeah, it's like, oh, limited to 9,995 worldwide, individually numbered, embossed on both sides, and it says an antique silver edition. I am skeptical of three out of four of those uh, descriptors, <laughs> but it's Banjo Kazooie. I saw it and I did a little uh, elated gasp. So I knew that I was going to pick this up. And you know what? I should actually sort of see if I can make it an amusing thing where I just get different amiibo to hold the coin. Like you see Kazuya here from Tekken, just have him like glowering and holding this giant coin. The, the enormous penny that's in Batman's lair. <laughs> exactly. You're familiar with the uh, What the Shell podcast that um, Chris Finnick's friend does, right? Doc Hobb on the Discord. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm a frequent listener to his show. And as a result, when he put up like, oh, I'll give away free stickers for anybody that can correctly guess. Not when the first hack happened, but specifically uh, when the first bug bounty was put out. Do you know what a bug bounty is? Uh, no, I don't. A bug bounty is when the maker of a piece of software, usually a big company, puts out notice that if you find a bug in our software, mm -hmm. if you let us know about it, we'll pay out for it depending on how serious the bug is. Oh, I think I might have heard of that. So what was the what was the uh, this to do with the um, what the shell podcast again? It was it, like it, it was it. So. John Cordes, the guy, the name of the guy, he'll mm -hmm. he teaches a lot about hacks, about hackers, dangers in software. Talks about the Internet of Things. You know, when your when your fridge has an internet connection and stuff like that. Learn a lot about that end of things. He himself is a programmer and is in that sort of info security community and everything like that. So he's been teaching a lot from the perspective of that sort of thing. And on his Discord. He put out the question, and I was one of the people that didn't guess the exact year that the first bug bounty uh, was was put out, but mm. I got close enough, and so I got some stickers from him, including the special "What the Shell" official oh. mascot, the uh, the Shelly. The I, I actually I'm probably getting the uh, name wrong, but like the, the little cyber turtle that is the "What the Shell" mascot. Oh, that's right. I love it. <laughs> I've got some other ones right here. One one is just one of the the symbols. Oh, um, nice. What the shell, and also the uh, the official logo, like we have an official logo for um, uh, yeah for through the window. And I was like, well, these are great oh. stickers. I don't have much many things to put stickers on, but I was like, oh no, wait, this the cyber turtle is great. So I'll just put that put on it. my phone case. Very nice. You know what? We should actually, uh, like, not not even for, you know, commercial or any purposes, but we should definitely do a through the window stickers. Well, like, you think we need we need so we need to um, hire maybe not Antonio Torreson, but whoever it was that they got to do the uh, the cartoony James and the cartoony um, Mortimer. I mean, uh, we're, we're not talking like Willow, are we? Because I know Willow used that uh, sort of software to no, make it, little chippy versions. But Willow uh, has been doing their own thing with artwork, and I've been—I'm actually on their Patreon, so I get to see oh, neat. the progress they've been making there. There, but they've been using things yeah, like subscribe to that. Oh, I'm, I might, yeah, I might, uh, yeah, I might do that. I don't remember how I first found out about it per se. Maybe it was. I think Sharon put a to, link up there, yeah, but they're yeah. on Patreon as William Voidson. William so. Voidson, okay, yeah. Willow, this isn't us hinting at anything. I'd forgotten about this conversation long ago, but if you're interested in a potential commission for Through the Wind Door, have someone reach out. Oh, yeah, no, and I am, I am subscribed to them on YouTube, so, mm -hmm. yeah, no. Oh, uh, Sarah, I got the coin out. It's in a little, like, plastic... Case, it's nice. Like, yeah. yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah, that is nice. It reminds me of my Beanie Baby tags. Oh, yeah. My grandparents long ago gave me commemorative U.S. minted Olympic coins, I want to say, from the 80s. Mm -hmm. I have one from 1986 and 1988. Wow. Before either of us were born, Sarah. Yeah. 
they're not really worth anything yet. I did, in <laughs> fact, check, be like, okay, if I tried to sell these, how much are they worth? And they're worth like 20 bucks or something like that because it's like the 80s was not that long ago. So yeah. I'm continuing to hold on to them in hopes that maybe they will appreciate in value. But they're uh, also one of those things where it's like, it has value because we say it has value. These commemorative coins, just like commemorative plates and stuff like that, are essentially the original NFTs. Oh my god! Oh, I this is my, I mean, the thing is with this is that I have no intention of selling this. Like, look, it's got yeah. Banjo and Kazooie on it. Yeah, exactly. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man who pours the coffee, and he fills it only halfway. And before I even argue, he is looking out the window at somebody coming in. You realize just, you just ruined whatever I was going to say for you now. I I had I took a gamble and decided that whatever you were doing, I would ruin it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to regret giving you that audio. You're, knowing you, you're going to use that burp as the sort of transition noise effect for like an outtake thing, just like my burp as the like. I mean, if you insist, Toby. <laughs> Have you had a chance to listen to the uh, Beyond the Wind Door that I just put out? Oh, yeah, I, I listened to that. <laughs> you on listened the day. to the whole thing. Okay, yep. I wasn't yep, sure. Yep, yep. The edit on that was great. I love you for actually tracking down the Bananas in Pajamas song as well. See, that's the thing, is that as soon as I started, started singing it, I was like, that's definitely a thing. I heard it from somewhere, and I don't remember where. Like, it would have been one thing that was like, no, I've never heard that before, but let me see what YouTube has. But this mm. was like, no, I absolutely recognize that from it somewhere. That's what that's what I like about Del Toro is that he feels like someone who is very invested in a lot of subjects and stories to be told that are very much like stuff that we value. But he is also someone who is invested in propping up and propelling just a great variety of storytelling, a great variety of tales from other people and not always the same people either it will be quite diverse and i think an anthology series like cabinet of curiosities is a great indication of that because he prizes and values and cultivates storytellers i'll be very curious to eventually watch it mm. but i also just think to myself now that i've burrowed myself deeper into guillermo del toro's body of work and i've listened to other people talk about it i will forever wonder what a guillermo del toro the hobbit movie would have been mm -hmm. i mean you could literally say i wonder what a guillermo del toro anything would look like and you would go "Ooh, like right but, but in this case he was working on it until I know, the money was, forced him out yeah that like that one has a little bit more proximity that universe has a bit more proximity to our own, but I my point is that I would be interested in Guillermo del Toro's Sandman, Guillermo mm. del Toro's Good Omens, Guillermo del Toro's um, just a number of things. That's I don't mean to say that del Toro is so sort of flexible that he applies to any conventional set situation, but all I mean by that is that he is able to instill and draw out just the absolute best imagination in a visual sense that I love, that I'm always interested in going to something and just seeing his treatment of it. I'm not sure how I would feel about him trying to take on a work that where the author is still living. We got off on a tangent here on creators that worked together and then tried to speak for their lost fellow creator, such as Spielberg and Kubrick or Gaiman and Pratchett, but I'm excising the conversation because it got rambly and unfocused. Here is where the conversation got relevant again. In a slightly more jokey side of things, I would say, oh, I hope that he doesn't only work on things, on works of other people's when the author is dead, because otherwise we'll ne never get him to direct 
the film adaptation of a new century book. I mm. Stone Spring okay. Maidens, by the way. You think Guillermo del Toro for Stone Spring Maidens? That would be mine. Huh. I'd have to think about that one because Guillermo del Toro works a little bit more towards the creepy. I'd be more curious to see him do Let Them Go or Nightfall of the Wendigo. The person mm. I'd want to see for Stone Spring Maidens mm. would actually be Denis Villeneuve. That would definitely work. Princess Thieves? It would definitely tweak the tone of it, but it would, I think, not be a million miles off. See, the thing is, is that you need someone talented with comedy for the Princess Thieves. And while I wouldn't say that there is no comedic elements in The Shape of Water, I think that there is more of a darkness in anything that Guillermo del Toro does. And while there is some darkness overall mm. in The Princess Thieves, it's not the same as the darkness in some of Alex's other books. Mm. The obvious one to pick for directing The Princess Thieves would be James Gunn, but... I'm Maybe. not 100% sold on that. Yeah. Because I... even James Gunn, when you finally get around to seeing Peacemaker, mm. Peacemaker has a lot more uh, Gunn's darker, harsher cutting sensibilities that he mm. leaves out of things like anything he does for Disney. The stuff that he did with The Suicide Squad and Peacemaker are far edgier overall. And yeah. that's where you get to see that part of him in those creations. And while there is an edge to the Princess Thieves, it's not the same kind of edge. Mm. So I'd want, I'd have to think about that. I have to think about a director that is good at the spectacle, is good at the comedy, and mm. is good at the drama. And I don't have one immediately coming to, um, to the mm. top of my head. But this is a fun conversation. I think that we should continue yeah. it at some point. No, I think what we should do is just get a range of different directors and mm -hmm. say what story we would want them for. Uh, I've got one or two that have come to mind, but I'm going to save this for a potential Beyond the Wind Door episode. Anyway. Thinking about it more and more, Guillermo del Toro is, is absolutely the right one for Let Them Go, possibly for Nightfall, because... The monster is not the monster. No, actually, yes. no, that's no. Okay, Dawson is a monster, but the Wendigo is still killing everybody. The Wendigo is not the fish man from Shape of Water or the fawn. But from the last Ant scene, though. Mm, mm, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a really good point. Okay. Mm. Mm, mm. And okay. the way that the ghosts manifest and. You've seen The Devil's Backbone now, and you've heard that quote, mm -hmm. which is my favorite quote of... Beginning what... and ending, book book ending the, the movie. It was, an mm. it was an intriguing choice, bringing it back. Definitely a conversation worth bringing up again. But in the meantime, I do have a director for Princess Thieves, Kenneth Branagh. Thank you for the Vita, Alex. I've enjoyed my time with it so far. I will definitely have enjoyed it a great deal more by the time you hear this. To specify, Alex did not just uh, gift me a Vita. He was able to hunt it down and I uh, provided the money for it so there, to make sure there was no money out of his pocket. And he made sure he knew I knew exactly how to find all the best games for it. And I shall leave it at that. It was a good time. It is a good time. I intend to play an awful lot of Final Fantasy. Anyway, Greg's back. I'm going to kiss his face. All right, that's enough burping. Let's go back to our usual noise. Hmm. Okay. I'm not going to comment, even though I know you were saying things. You know nothing. One day, I'm going to sit in absolute silence... Yeah, next one to day, the microphone. But, but today is not that day. Like, in, in fact, I'll throw you for a loop because I'll mime speaking, mm -hmm. and then when you come back on the audio, it will look like you're a crazy person.
And now I'm a little bit sad, because this bit was recorded months ago, when Toby and Sarah's hamster had a health scare, and they thought they were going to lose him, only to have Apple pass away not long after this recording. So, a final tribute to this wonderful little ball of fur. You, uh, if your throat is uh, feeling a little under the weather, you know what they say, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, so... Here we go. We are presenting you with this app. Hammy. Hammy. Hammy, So good, Hammy. It is so nice to have him here. And Yeah. Uh, oh, he's going to nibble the microphone for our enjoyment. I actually have a soundbite of our previous hamster uh, doing exactly that. When I remember. I, was do- I, I put it into yeah. an episode. I forget, or, I forget where. So, yay. Yay, hamster, yay! Oh my god, I love him. I love him so much. Sorry for disrupting you guys. No, no, no. we were actually finishing. Uh, Greg needs to rest his voice. Oh, and okay, that's... We, we've got some very good stuff. This this was a very good show. We feel so... Emotionally. Yeah, because we were basically covering the biggest death in the story. Aww. Which means that we... Uh, Thank God we got it done. We don't have to do it again. Yeah. No, uh, I think the rest of the book will actually be a good deal easier to cover now that this thing that I think we were dreading. And look at, look at him. I like, know brush... <laughs> Oh, you know what? You might be able to hear him chirping. One sec. Could you hear that? No, it's too quiet. No. Sorry. No, too quiet. Well, uh, I recorded him yesterday actually on my phone. Oh, yeah, did you? Oh, very nice. Is that an audio thing? Yeah, it's an audio thing. Oh, send that over to me. Maybe we can actually get. Oh, uh, let's see. (laughs) If we. It's like this hamster ASMR. Let's see. You're going to eat the nugget? You're going to eat the nugget? No, you're going to scratch. Hold on. Okay, he is now (laughs) eating. (laughs) Let me show you his butt. Yeah. I'll be in a face the other way, but... It's all right. <laughs> He's that way. <laughs> I present to you a fuzzball. Contemplate the orb, Greg. <laughs> Sorry, just doing some sigh there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Greg just mind the other guy uh, when he's, like, sort of freaking out over a lady's butt. He, yeah. uh, Greg was freaking out over Apple's butt. That's I me. Mean, that, is, that is it. See, and I'm, I'm about to mention something here that I'm probably going to have to remove, but sure. it, it makes me think about um, eventually these four worlds are going to collide, as we well know. Uh-huh. And I know that there's going to be different roles that's going to take place with this and that the connection between groups isn't necessarily always going to be for the better, but... In addition to what we know about the Smilotron being able to be waged on behalf of the, the good peoples of the Eastern Continent against the, uh, the hmm. colonization forces of the Lions and everybody else. I see why you're going with this. Part of me is also being like, yes, we have a Smilotron and all of a sudden we have a bunch of Crystal Knights coming in on the sides <laughs> of the of the various uh, cat tribes and all the lines are going what the fuck is this <laughs> maybe today we won't colonize should we just you know go back to our isle and you know invent some of our own stuff and just kind of call it quits there yeah th- that's probably good let's not appropriate anymore <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, let's not go to Rama. It is a fucking dangerous place. I, I just like the idea of like the lions of Albion just looking at all this like in a like an old-fashioned cartoon or like film comedy of just like the alcoholic looking at something bizarre and then just emptying the bottle of booze <laughs> they have. It's just like them emptying the like the bottles of colonialism. It's just like <laughs> I don't think that's enough colonialism today <laughs> now who would be the one lone human in the christmas thieves would we get an actual person or, yeah, or, or, yeah okay. do the michael kane thing yeah i mean the only other thing that i could think of was that no, could be, could, it could be merlane but no it, in order to really mess with everybody the one 
actual living creature on the set should actually just be the horse the that nag. get to play the nag. <laughs> like the free tickets. Like that would be so good. <laughs> <laughs> and and the nag insists that it like uh, this evening the role of the nag shall be played by Michael Caine. Ellie's <laughs> <laughs> well, supposed to blow the bloody dolls off. I told you. We're loopy this evening. Yes, I, we are loopy this evening. I'm enjoying it's, it. It's been so long, Toby. I've missed you so much. Oh, it is entirely mutual. Right. She was just saying, you, you missed this comment from earlier. Toby was just saying we need more rain. More, more rain. More rain. <laughs> more rain. More more rain. I mean, me. I mean, what? <laughs> we, we need to stop talking about Maureen and get back to talking about Maureen. <laughs> we need to stop talking about Maureen and get back to talking about Maureen. Can't say that Thank you.